The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about process work and what that does and how that helps you to grow, to be a better person, to be able to move through conflict. And I got this great book called Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and it's by David Bendrick, and he has an incredible background, very interesting background, a law degree, everything. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about him in, in a minute, but that's what we're going to be doing this, and I, I got a big kick out of the name of this because whenever I am surfing on TV and I see Dr. Phil, I, I want to kill him, you know, I really want to kill him. So I was so glad to see that somebody was talking back to him. So let me tell you a little bit about David. Uh, David Bendrick is a, has a Juris Doctorate, a law degree, and he's a diplomat of process work. And he's a counselor, attorney, teacher, author, and he spent eight years teaching psychology and philosophy on the faculty of the University of Phoenix, and he's taught in the Navy at 3M Corporation, the American Society of Training and Development, the Process Work Institute, and psychological associations, small groups. He does a lot of different trainings. And he's even received awards for teaching, employee development, and legal services to the community. David is a sought-after expert on the topics of shame, personal and collective trauma, cultural and sexual identity issues, stereotyping, and more. And he blogs for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post and other pu publications online. And he counsels people across the nation via phone and Skype. So we're so thrilled that he's joining us from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thank you, David, for joining us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that lovely and, and gracious introduction. Well, David, let me ask you something. So how did you decide to do this book, Talking Back to Dr. Phil? I'm actually thrilled that you, you did that. Um, but um, how has this came about? Actually, I think we're not so different, Mari, in this way, that you said, oh, I hear Dr. Schill and, and, uh, and I want to kill him, you said. I won't, I won't hold you to those literal words. I, I understand the sentiment of that. <laughs> um, and I had the same reaction. I would listen every so often. I would think, oh, how could you say that? There's a woman who's, who's not happy with her body, and you're not noticing how much inner criticism she has. How could you do that? Or there's a... a, a um, 
a person who's smoking cigarettes and you're just trying to put them on a smoke enders program may be helpful, but not terribly psychological. Go deeper with that person. So I had so much passion and motivation about it. I thought maybe uh, contrasting, looking into Dr. Phil as a straw man for a certain way of thinking might be a good way to communicate a message. Exactly. By the way, have you ever heard from him after you wrote this book? I was thinking about that. I have not. I did. I did send him a book, did and, you? <laughs> uh, and and there's a, there's getting to be more and more press uh, about uh, about me and the book, but uh, not yet. Actually, you way. should go on his show and have like you know a point and counterpoint. <laughs> that would be interesting, don't you think? That would be. Fun. I think it would be. It, it's just the right thing to do because the discussion, the dialogue is so important. There ought to be somebody who says a Dr. Phil type thinking that says the way to overcome your anger, Mari, is to let go and relax and meditate. And then there ought to be someone like me who says sometimes anger has power in it and capacities that a person needs. Don't have them let go only. Show them the value and the richness of their experiences. That dialogue ought to belong in the culture between Dr. Phil and I and between many people. And, you know, I deal with anger all the time, you know, because as a mediator, I'm sitting there in the midst or shall we say the eye of the storm all around me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, anger is is obviously a signal. It's a red flag that something's wrong. And, um, and to explore, not to blow up, but to really explore and kind of go deep into that anger and find out where, where is this all coming from? What do I need to do? And then, you know, after you're, you know, can can process it and use it as a motivation to change your life, you know, that's that's okay. Anger is is really not that horrible of a thing if you use it effectively. But um, let, let's talk a little bit about the difference between mainstream psychology and, um, you know, w- w- the kinds of process that you do. Can you kind of explain that to us? Sure. Mainstream psychology, what I call mainstream psychology, is a certain kind of thinking that Dr. Phil demonstrates. You come in with something that bothers you about yourself, it's anger, it's depression, it's a behavioral pattern, let's say. And the Dr. Phil type thinking is, Mari, what are you thinking? How is that working for you? Ice cream making a fat? Stop eating ice cream. That sounds pretty basic. I don't call that very psychological. That sounds like something many people would say. That advice might be useful, but most people don't sustain. For instance, we have a $60 billion diet industry, yeah. many, different op- many different options, with a 5 or 10% success rate that are sustainable. Most people can lose weight short term. So that says that telling people that they're not pleasant or they're doing things that are not intelligent or they don't look good or pretty tends not to help people and often leaves them feeling worse about themselves. Now I really not only am, don't like my body, but I think I'm psychologically not together enough. So in my orientation is to say, oh, you're eating ice cream. What is that ice cream like? Now, why am I saying that? I'm thinking that that person is doing something that has some meaning in it. That's not to say I'm going to say, please go eat as much ice cream as you want. But I think if I'm going to help them with the ice cream eating problem, we're identifying Mm -hmm. one idea, Mm -hmm. then I should know something. That person might say, I like it. What do you like about it? Well, it comforts me, they might say. That's almost never deeply true, by the way. If you say to people, go ahead, imagine eating that ice cream, put it in your mouth, in your imagination, they might go, mmm, oh, I'm just floating. I'm like, oh, floating? Tell me about floating. Oh, life is so heavy all the time. So. 
Now that person is saying they're not comforting themselves. They're lifting themselves from a heaviness of life. If I want to help them with ice cream, I ought to help them deal with the heaviness of life. That's what they're looking for. Now I understand enough to help them with the ice cream problem. If I try to take it away from them, I never learn that they want it to be lighter and not so heavy. Yeah. You know, that really reminds me. I took a class recently from a friend of mine who's a psychologist out here. You might get a kick out of this. And um, the class was being in the present and and recognizing the present and using eating as a tool to do that. And so, like, the first class, he brought an apple. And we did several things. You know, we, we talked about how it sounded, how it tasted, where we felt it, keep it in our mouth a little longer. To really be in that present moment and and you know, to understand what it was that we were, it wasn't a diet class. It was about becoming, you know, present in the future, but using food, which all of us were thinking, well, if we do this and we are present, then we won't overeat and we won't do that. And and it was helpful. It was helpful. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of a fun thing to do. It took me like an hour to eat that damn apple. (laughs) But I really got a lot. I had, I mean, I noticed things about the apple that I had never noticed because so many of us eat Mm -hmm. unconsciously. That's right. So that was kind of, but that's what it reminded me of. Just like when you said, you know, you like the ice cream. Why do you like that ice cream? What are you getting out of that ice cream? Well, it feels good on my tongue, you know, and it, it tickles and it's sweet and it, you know, so yeah, interesting. That's right. I, lo- I, lo- I love what you're saying. That's a, that's a, that's an approach that many people would, uh, would prescribe a kind of mindfulness right. of eating, etc. Sometimes, Maria, I'm not suggesting this has happened in yours. What that misses sometimes. For yeah. some people, especially if they have an eating difficulty, struggle right. in their life, right. then sometimes what it misses is the putting that mindfulness not just on the taste, etc., but the background feeling state. Right. So sometimes a person will have a feeling state connected to things. If you put the mindfulness on that, they'll learn something really deep about themselves. Yes. So for instance, I'm thinking about um, switching from diet uh, issues to to what are Consider straight-out addiction issues. Food could certainly be an addictive uh, uh, pattern as well. Right, right. Thinking about a person who was uh, I was working with who was uh, um, these are permissible stories to tell, by the way. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the people have given me an, an okay, uh, this person used cocaine and if, and like and among other drugs, but he he shot up cocaine. And that was a very strong experience. He wanted to get off of that. Psychiatrists and psychologists wanted to help him get off that. Family members, etc. All the difficulties that happen around finances and relationships, having difficulties around strong addictions. Mm-hmm. But, but so everyone's trying to get him off of that. How successful are programs, whether they're seven-day programs, AA programs, year-long residential programs? 30% roughly effectiveness of the best programs. Mm. If you look at the research, what right. the heck, excuse me, is happening? Yes. No, very rarely people are saying, that means if we just take that rationally, if you say to me, I, if I'm a cocaine addict, I'm, I'm not, by the way, yeah. I'm a cocaine addict, and you're trying to get me to stop doing it, and mm. I'm not, that means that what I'm getting out of the cocaine is more potent than your intervention, your guilt, your shame, your... Right, right. So, so in that case, we ought to know what is so good about that. So I say to the person, what's it like doing cocaine? No one's ever asked him the question. Simple question in, in a lot of ways. He says, well, uh, I don't know. I said, he says, it's mellow. It's easy. I said, go ahead. Tell me, imagine, don't do it. 
we have to be very sober about it because I'm not interested in having him kill himself, right? Yeah, right, right. But I do need to know something. Can you tell me, when you imagine you're putting that needle in your arm, excuse me if that's too graphic people, what happens? And And his face lights up. He says, oh, it's such a rush. And I see this guy looking more alive, more lit up than I ever see him. Right. Incredible. I'm like, hello there. Nice to meet you. Right. <laughs> and like, you're an intense guy, aren't you? Well, I should be more gentle and, and easy in my life. Oh, no, brother. You are looking for something that looks like a rush. Now, I better help you live some of the intensity you have. Otherwise, you're going to reach for something that gives you at least the sense of that intensity. So that all that work was about helping him connect with his hungers for music that were hard for him to live and the intensity of being up at night writing music, all these things that were sort of part of his creative life but couldn't be lived because he tried to be a nice, decent, mellow guy. That's good. So he was suppressing. Yeah, he was suppressing that excitement and that passion. Beautiful. And so, way to yeah, it. so you That's right. you helped him to direct it in a healthy way. So did he stop doing drugs? Not yet. <laughs> okay, Not no, yet. But we're getting there. We're Not yet. There. And, yeah. but, but I love the, the question is really important because because that's a goal. So yes. he's done some less. So he's more conscious of what he's doing. He's creating a little bit fewer problems economically for people. So things are getting better. But it ought to be said to people to be realistic. Stopping a person from a heavy addictive process. That goal is a good one, but one must be realistic about how to address those kind of lifelong difficulties. Otherwise, it starts to look like psychology and treatment programs or people like me are panaceas. Bring yeah. your addicts to me. I will right. heal them all. You right. should be suspicious of me if I said that. Right. The data doesn't bear that out. Right. No, I think it's getting, that's part of the whole mindfulness too. Like, what, what are you doing? Oh, I get a rush from it. Okay, so tell me about that rush. I mean, going deeper and deeper into that mindfulness, I think, is incredible. And like I said, when I took that class and we would debrief at the end or the next week and people would do some, you know, exercises at home, they'd say, you know, I, I found as I was more mindful, instead of choosing something that was really fatty and greasy, um, like French fries, you know, I, I decided that I really did want to take some veggies and, and dip them in some dip. That just, you know, so it's kind of interesting that when you get mindful and you start to ask yourself these questions about why am I doing these things? Why am I eating? Why am I doing drugs? Why am I doing things? It, it really is um, a life changing event to be mindful right that's that's right absolutely and how often are we mindful i mean it's really right i noticed especially of those i'm sorry go ahead no no go ahead yeah especially of those things that are most troubling or that we like least about ourselves yeah so that so if i'm doing something i don't if i'm depressed and i think oh that's terrible i'm not productive i should be up i would look better my partner would like me more if i was happier so i'm so if you listen to me i'm so against my depression right. it's a bad thing i want please anti depress me david try to drink coffee get up exercise everyone's giving me anti depression right. so that means if you're so against it how are you going to become mindful of the depression no one's saying could you be a little bit depressed with me and yeah. let me see what that's like so we can yeah. have it because in those difficult experiences are seeds that want to flower. But if we're only against those, that mindfulness that you're describing never happens. The only thing that's happening is a bunch of barrage of shaming and criticism of myself of being something I'd rather not be. Yeah, it's like that old adage, whatever you resist persists. Beautiful. Right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. If we, if we keep burying it down, it just keeps 
a, you know, it's ugly mm-hmm. head keeps coming up. Beautifully now, it, put. In, in your book, you had, um, and I want to say the name of the book again in case you just started listening and you're driving by. It's called Talking Back to Dr. Phil. I love that name. Mm-hmm. Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology by David Bedrick. Bedrick. Now, David, in, in your book, you refer, we, you refer to nature in your reference to our natural tendencies, okay? Mm-hmm. And so, so what, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Talk about that. That's such, that's such a deep that's such a deep thing and an important thing to me. You're on the crux of where my heart is. When I look at somebody who's and and they say, "Here's where I'm a mess. Here's where I'm troubled." What I actually see, and this may seem odd to someone, I see a piece of nature in that needle in that person's arm. I see nature trying to express itself. In this case, in intensity, not the needle in the arm. I'm not suggesting right, that right. again. It's but what in it intensity. represents. Yeah, what or let's it represents. Say a, let's say a woman looks in the mirror and sees a big belly. She doesn't want to have that big belly. I see a piece of nature. What is that like? It's big. It's round. What is that like to have that big belly? Is it soft? Is it weighty and make her strong? Is it a protective layer? I don't know what it is. But nature is expressing itself, even in these things that looked awful. Um, and the reason why idea of nature uh, curse I'm like an environmentalist of people. I think, don't cut down that tree yet. <laughs> I know it looks bad. I know it looks bad. But let's find out why nature is doing that. Right, right. We may actually find out something really incredible. I've never not seen something incredible in people in short order, just by what you're suggesting, putting some mindfulness. Oh, I see what that person's doing. How wonderful, how amazing. Now maybe I can also help them do it in different ways. That's also a wonderful uh, result to do. But first, that appreciation of nature. Mm. Mm -hmm. You talk about love-based psychology, too. So what is that predicated on? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, I was interested in the idea of love, and people, of course, there's lots written about that, and, and I thought, what is this creature? <laughs> anyway, and everybody has a definition or experience that's their own, so, so I don't know of an authority about it. I won't try to be one. But I started asking people about their experiences. When did you feel loved? When did you not feel loved? And I collected all these stories, mm. and I noticed three things about it. I'm kind of a research mind in me, so I like doing research. <laughs> so I, and I found that people... The three things came out of that, you know, that particular uh, research. One is that people felt, and when people felt loved, they had, they had an experience of feeling seen. Not just seen like, I see you, but seen deeply, looked at. Oh, I, like, as, you're saying, as I'm doing with these different experiences around diet or addictions, what are you doing there? Oh, no one's ever looked at me. No one's ever asked me what it's like to put the cigarette in my mouth. No one's ever seen me, mm. exactly. And then there's a feeling response to people that people feel loved by. So if you're telling me a painful story, and I kind of just get, well, Mari, let's, let's analyze that, and I don't show some heart that's moved by you, mm-hmm. then Empath- you empathy, might not yeah. feel like somebody cares, like they're having a response, like I just told you a painful story, doesn't, that, doesn't anything happen over the other side? Um, and then there's a sense of really believing in people in their worst places. I know that looks terrible for you, but I bet you if I respect you, look closely at you there, and bring some compassion, some, we might be- find something. I believe in you, even in your worst places, that something is redeemable and maybe magnificent about you. And if you put those together, people have a ex- certain experience when you bring those attitudes towards people of wanting to reveal, show things, de-shames them from thinking they should hide themselves, and really deep growth can happen at that point. Yeah, to, to feel that you, are, that you matter, 
You know, that's what I was thinking about when you said to feel seen, that you really matter, that your thoughts matter, that you're cared about, and that, and that you know, you feel that sense of love. You know, when, I, when, I do, when I'm in mediation, when, when things get resolved and people are able to move past the, the hatred or the anger or stuff like that, I was thinking about what is really missing when you're in conflict. And one of those things you talk about is respect. And respect and dignity, that if, if, if the parties can really respect each other, and this gets kind of back to what you were just talking about, where they, for the first time, really see, hear, and understand each other. You know, maybe not agree, but really understand where that person is and have compassion for that other person's perspective, whether or not you live it or not. But you really say, gosh, if I were here in, in your shoes, I guess I would feel exactly the same. You know, Um, but you talk about respect and that's the willingness to look, you know, Mm -hmm. the spect and then look Mm -hmm. again. So uh, kind of tell me about how that really relates to your approach. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like as you were just implying, respect comes from the word spect, like spectator or spectacle to see and re to do it again. Look again. So now you're making me think about uh, conflict resolution kinds of things. So, uh, so let's say I have a couple in my practice, and they're having some conflict about something. And then one person, let's say, let's say it's a man and a woman. It wouldn't have to be that for sure. Let's say the man and the woman. And the man keeps on looking over to the right towards the door. Mm. And, and somebody might say, hey, pay attention here, we might say. F- focus on this other person. But I respect that. I say, that's so interesting. You keep on looking over to the door. Dear woman on the other side of the conflict, can I take just a couple of minutes to find out what he's doing there? So I'm respecting her, right? Yes. She says, most of the time she'll say yes. If she doesn't, I won't, I won't insist. Right. And she'll say, go ahead. I'll say, great. Can you look at the door again? Now, why am I doing that? <laughs> I'm doing that because I'm respecting what he's doing. I don't know what's happening yet, but I'm believing that something might be interesting. And he says, well, I'm looking at the door, and I just keep on thinking, when is this session going to end? Right, right. How I can say, I get the heck out of here? <laughs> that's right. I say, great. I said, you, you would rather not be here. He says, right. I said, tell me why. Right. And he says, well, what always happens when we have a conflict and now he's going to tell me something that in two minutes that it would have taken me an hour to learn. <laughs> I think, amen. I'm glad I know they've tried 18 different things, and this is the pattern that always happens. Why do I have to fall into that hole? Right. I'm not immune. I right. would have. So I think, how amazing. I might even say to him, can you get up and go by that door and look at yourself and your imagination and your partner and see what you see? Get it. You need distance. Your eyes are looking away. Go ahead and get some distance. Don't be here in the middle of this conflict. Well, I see two people really caught in their ways. What would you advise them? Now, I'm just I'm getting that not from a trick of, of, uh, of analysis. I'm just respecting his look. And I'm thinking he's looking away because there's something intelligent. He doesn't know what it is, but I'm going to respect it, trust that there's some intelligence in what he's doing, even if it looks like he's not paying attention, and we may find out something very useful for how to help that problem. Oh, I love it. I love that one. That is great, because I sometimes have people in mediation that that they look at the watch, you know? That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. the same kind of a thing. Okay, so gee, uh, that would be a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. So, and that, that word respect and, and really looking at it, like you said, um, I was thinking about respect and, and really getting into what that person is doing. That part of that respect from 
the way I do it in mediation is that I do the reflective or the, you know, effective or active listening that you talk about. So someone will say to me, well, you know, he stole that money. So I'd repeat back and I said, well, I, I think I heard you say that he took that money and you didn't want him to take it. And you thought that that was dishonest. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, you know, that's part of the respect is kind of like respecting, kind of showing, looking at it again from from me saying it back to him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's yes. that's part of that active listening. And then I'll say, did I get it right? Well, yeah, you didn't get it exactly right. I said he was an asshole, you know, or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> or some, he was a bad word or, or something like that. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, that I that's an interesting that's great, way to look at yeah. it, that respect and, yeah. and just kind of looking at what they're really doing and taking them from where they are. I love it. Yes. I, I, I like your example about the conflict. Here's an interesting analogy to the conflict situation you're describing and where the use of respect is. If a person, let's go back to the diet question for a second. Let's say a person says, I want to lose weight. I've tried to lose weight. I've done A, B, C, and D. It's worked for a while and it didn't. That implies an inner conflict. One part of them says, I should do A, B, C, and D and right. stick to those diets, right. but somebody else doesn't and eats anyway, right? Yes. Well, whatever yes. they do. Or doesn't they? So that's a conflict. And, then they, get, says, and then they get angry at themselves, right? So they're in right. a fight with themselves. That's right. They're in a fight with themselves. Now, now if I, I love the way you reflected back that, that, that one part to that person. You said, oh, is it, is it you're saying? So I'd say to that person, you're really upset with yourself for eating. Yeah, tell me what you, would, what you say to yourself. What goes on inside your head? Yeah, you're ugly, you're disgusting, you're, you're undisciplined, no one's going to ever love you, right? That's what, she, that's what this yeah. woman is saying yeah. to herself. Yeah. Now, I might do something just like you did. I would say, I want to say those things to you. Please get ready for me, too, because I don't want you to be hurt by this. But I want you to see what your reaction is. Just be with yourself, get present, as you would say, uh, study yourself, be mindful of your experiences. I'm going to say something to you. Ready? And she says, okay. And I say, you're disgusting, you're this, no one's going to ever love you. What happens to you? And that woman's going to report one of two things. She's going to feel feeling crushed. Yeah. Oh my, or feeling pissed. Right. So in that case, as an inner conflict experience, she now gets to see, just like you made clear for that, uh, for that person in the, in the relationship uh, dilemma, she gets to see what's happening to her. I'm saying things to myself all day long that I'm either angry about or crushed by. <laughs> that's really important to know. She thinks that she's trying to help herself lose weight. What's really happening is she's either crushing herself or being pissed off at a diet program that's not working, both of which are, have a lot more intelligence than insisting that she try to do the diet program that's not working. So, so when you have someone like that who's, who's doing this, you know, the self-anger and, and then, you know, being incongruent with what they say they want. So, yes. so how do you get them to the other side? How do you get them to actually start to have them do affirmations that are different, that they have them say, I'm not going to say that to myself anymore. Now I'm going to say to myself, you know, I'm doing a good job. Yes. I'm, 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 I take one it's today is the first day of the rest of my life. I mean, what do you yes. say? I, I tend not to do use affirmations very often. They can be very useful and skillfully used. It's just not my method. I would say, let's imagine I say to that person, okay, you're this, you're that, and I say these barrage of criticisms. And let's say she has a little bit of anger. She shows some teeth. She, her jaw gets tight. Her hands grip the, the chair. She's got a little, and I'll say, you look like you've got a little muscle in there. You're not only liking that. She'd say, well, no, who would like that? How, if you were free to, take, to use all that force, that anger that you have against me, this voice, 
What would you say? And she might say, rah, 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 I've been listening to you all my life. You were this. I had you in my boss, whatever. Mm. Now, now, what's happened there is I haven't given her an affirmation, but she's now in touch with something she wasn't before. Right. She can't stand what's being shoved down her throat in the way of how she's supposed to look. The way this diet program is given to her is not useful. It's not my intelligence. She now knows that and has a reaction that's really good. And I'd be like, well, what would help you then? If not, it's not sitting here telling you A, B, C, and D about how, how terrible you are, what would help you? She's going to give me a direction. I would support her to begin coming up with her own program because she's now in touch with her own intelligence, her own nature, natural intelligence, not mine, not Dr. Atkins or whoever, which she thinks is right. She might say, well, right now I wouldn't do any dieting yet, I would just stop taking crap from people. I'd say, let's start doing it. I would say that's the beginning of your diet program because she knows. I don't know what her program is going to yes. be, but she's saying, I'm saying, all right, we're looking at a woman becoming more empowered as the beginning of her diet program. It's not about food yet for her. Yes, but eventually it will be. I love it. I love it. I love it. And believe it or not, we are out of time, David. That was so fun. We'll have to have you back again. David has this wonderful book, uh, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, website TalkingBackToDrPhil.com. David, I hope we can have have this again. So much fun, and I hope to get to see you in Santa Fe. I appreciate it. Good work with all the conflict work you're doing. I'm really impressed listening to you and how you use presence and mindfulness. I'm glad you're out there doing good work like that. And you too. That's great. Okay, we will have you back again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're welcome. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning at 830 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.